good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. Again, whether you're in the room or online, we're glad that you're here, regardless of uh, where you're at in the mix of all that. And I uh, want you to know something that is important to you. you are, we already know this is important to you. We want you to know that it's important to us. And that is that this is a safe place for you to ask the questions that you have about God about Jesus, about the Bible, about faith, about any of those things, this is a safe place for you to ask those questions that you have. And uh, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not yet, and we have many at Northridge who are not quite sure where they're at with God, uh, even right now in this moment today. And so that's okay. We want you to seek and to ask those questions, those honest questions that you have uh, about God and about faith and about the Bible. So uh, we are in the midst of, we're kind of toward the end of a series called Puzzled by the Bible. So very simply, the Bible can be puzzling. It can be difficult to understand and to know where to start and all the different things that go with that. But on, in addition to that, the Bible, sometimes we approach this book like it's a puzzle. We know pieces, but we don't understand that it's one big picture. That it's one big story that God is trying to tell from beginning to end. There is a reason. God is always on purpose. God is always on time. Even though, according to us, sometimes we're like, ah, I don't know, it could have been maybe better. Right? Sometimes we believe that. We think that God is always on purpose and God is always on time. There's one big story that he's telling. And so, uh, as we've said uh, all the other weeks as well, I think it's important to know, give credit where credit's due. This series was originally delivered by a guy named Pastor Kevin Myers, uh, who preaches at a church called Twelve Stone Church, which is down in Atlanta. And he gave this like 10 years ago. So believe me, this has been in the hopper for quite a while for us. Uh, but we're just glad that you guys are here. And uh, we're going to dive in. So a lot of you might know this, but there's something going on tonight that people are thinking about. A big football game or something like that, right? I guess we call it the Super Bowl. Uh, but there's this big thing going on. And if you, uh, I, I've been involved in some of uh, Laura's texts back and forth to some of our friends. And some of our friends are not football fans, I wouldn't say. And so their jokes this week have been, hey, did you hear there's going to be a football game at the concert this, this evening? They... I'm just saying, those of you that are texting, you missed the main point. The football game is the thing. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, yeah, they're great, but I know some of you are in it for the halftime show and the commercials. I get that. That's cool, right? But today is Super Bowl Sunday, and so there's this big game. And so let me just kind of start by asking you this question. If I were wearing a, an NFL football jersey... It would probably be pretty obvious to you by looking at my physique and knowing what you know about me that if I were wearing an NFL football jersey, it is clear that I am not a player, but I am a fan. Right? Most of you would get that right away. You're like, clearly you're a fan and not a football player. And you would be right. But the truth is that there is a huge gap between a fan of a football team and a player on a football team, isn't there? If you're a fan, which most of us are, that means you can cheer for the team, you get excited about the team, your, your emotions might rise and fall with the team, but ultimately if the team wins or loses, you don't win or lose anything, right? You're just a fan. 
But if you're a player, the stakes are much higher, aren't they? Because you're under contract with the team. Like, you've made a promise to the team, you're going to deliver this, and the team has made promises to you, if you deliver that, we deliver this. Usually in the form of this, as we all know. So there's a huge gap. There's a huge difference between being a fan or being a player on a football team, isn't there? Well, the reason I bring that up is because today I want to talk about the difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. If you're just a fan of Jesus, you know about Jesus, you say, I believe in Jesus, but that's really as far as it goes, then you're really just a fan of Jesus and not really a follower. And so my question to you that I'm going to ask more than once, as you probably figured, is are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower? Are you one of his disciples? So as you kind of ponder that question, let me just say that what we've been dealing with in the Puzzled by the Bible series is we've been talking about the fact that God is telling one big story, and really the story is to help us understand what does it look like? How do we move from being just a fan of Jesus to being a true follower of Jesus? The one big story actually in the Bible is all about that. It explains that. It explains what God is doing and why he's doing it. So let me review the one big story real quick. So the Bible is made up of two parts. This is all review. If you've been here for the series, you know what I'm about to do. I'm about to give you the fire hose version, right? The two main parts are the Old Testament, the old contract. It's an old promise between God and people. And then there's the New Testament, the new contract, the new promise between God and people. In the Old Testament, there are five events that lead to Jesus. In the New Testament, there are five events that lead away from Jesus but point back to him. They actually mirror each other. They parallel each other just in ascending or descending order. So let's go through them. The first event in the Old Testament is a very big one. God creates a perfect world. He puts man and woman, the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, in the perfect world. First event. Second event messes everything up. Satan, Satan and sin enter our world. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They give in to temptation. They choose to rebel against God. And Satan and sin enter, and the perfect world is messed up. Third event, the world is judged and destroyed. It gets so bad that God says, I have to wipe everything out. And so we have a global flood. We call it Noah and the Ark. By the way, just so we're clear, when we say Noah and the Ark, we get pictures of like mural paintings on kids' classrooms in there, like giraffes sticking their heads out, and elephants, and yay! Fine, all well and good, but remember that the whole reason they were on the ark is because God had to destroy the entire world. It's a pretty bad day. And so God destroys the world with his global flood, and Noah and his family are the only ones that survive. Leads us to the fourth event, where everybody comes together, tries to become God. They try to build this tower to become God, and so God scatters the language, scatters the people all over the planet. That leads us to the fifth and final event that actually spans the rest of the Old Testament, and that is that the Old Covenant is established between God and people. He makes this promise to Abraham and says, hey, you're going to be my people, you're going to be a holy people, but we're going to have some agreements because I need you to do some things differently than what you've been doing them. So we're going to have this promise together, this contract together called the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. All right? Then everything leads to the pinnacle, the point of the whole story, which is Jesus. 
All right? The, the problem is sin. God's answer to sin and the Satan problem is a savior. Somebody who will sacrifice himself and take our place. And that is Jesus. And then that leads us to the five other events that descend but point back to Jesus. But they perfectly parallel the ones in the Old Testament. So we have the new covenant being established. This is because of Jesus. So we had this old promise, but that was kind of broken and messed up. And so God sends Jesus. He dies on the cross for us. And now the new covenant, new promise is all we have to do is accept Jesus to have forgiveness of sins. This is a big deal. So we have the new covenant. And then the next event hasn't happened yet. In fact, the next four, the last four on this list, have not happened yet. They're future things to come. The next event that the Bible says is going to happen is we're going to have a one-world government. We're going to have a one-world government. We're on our way. Again, I keep saying this, but it, that would have sounded crazy just 20, 30 years ago. But today, not so much. Everything in our world is pointing that direction. Everything. Now, is it going to take another 2,000 years to get there? I don't know, but that's where we're going. There's going to be a one-world government in the future. Now, where are we at on this timeline? We're after the new covenant and before the one-world government, so we're right in between there. We've been there for 2,000 years since Jesus. Okay, we don't know how long it's going to take to get to the one-world government, but now there's three more events that are going to happen after the one-world government. The next one that's going to happen is the world is going to be judged and destroyed again. The first one was by flood. The second time, it's going to be by fire. Next one, Satan and sin exit. This is a good day. This is where God literally kicks Satan and sin into hell. Okay? So Satan and sin exit is like a nice way of saying it. It's like saying Noah and the ark. Right? It's a nice way of saying it. But what literally it says in the book of Revelation is God is going to send Satan and sin into hell forever. For people who are followers of Jesus, that's a great day. Because that's the end of everything bad everything bad. And then the final event, it leads us to the greatest and final event, and that is God and redeemed people in paradise. We live with Jesus. Anybody who follows Jesus lives in paradise with Jesus forever. Now, let's go back to the whole football thing for a minute. If I am a player on the team, I kind of mentioned this, I would be said to be under contract with the team, right? There is a promise. I agree to show up to the practices. I agree to lift weights. A lot of weights, right? I agree to make sure physically I'm in the shape that I need to be in order to play the game. I'm going to study game film. I'm going to do, I make the promise that if you sign me onto the team, I make promises to the team. This is what I'm going to do. And the team makes promises to me. This is what we're going to do if you do what you say you're going to do. Right? We're said to be under contract. And it's interesting that it works similarly with God. Now, God doesn't say, I need you to do this and you know, the, the, all these things, blah, 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 and practices, all kind of stuff. But let's be honest, in some ways, God says, I've already made all the offers. The sacrifice has already been made. The price is already done. All you do need to do is accept it. But when you accept it, you're going to be part of the team. For example, uh, if you see somebody with an NFL jersey on, and you say, ooh, so you're a fan of the Packers, or you're a fan of the Broncos, or you're a fan of the Rams, or, 
you know, whatever, the Bengals. Some of you are in here. You want the Bengals to win because they, they've never had anything for their own. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Go Bengals. See? I knew we had somebody in here that was for it. If somebody shows up with a jersey, right? They're wearing a jersey, and you're like, oh, you must be a fan. You say, no, I'm a player. Really? That's awesome. Whose team are you on? Oh, I'm not on a team. I'm on my own team. That's when you step back a little bit because you're like, you're weird. Everybody knows that if you're on the team, that you contribute to the team. Right? The same is true with Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus, when you accept his sacrifice, his death on the cross, you become part of the team, but then it comes with responsibilities as well as the rights of salvation. And that is that you're going to follow Jesus. You're going you're to live your life in such a way where your words and your actions follow up and they line up with who Jesus is. In fact, God tells us in the book of Romans chapter 12, um, what we need to do, what we need to change. Let me read it. You guys have heard this a hundred times at Northridge because I quote this verse all the time because it's one of the, kind of the basis verses for our faith. This is what Romans 12, 2 says. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. Did you catch that? A new person. You're not the old person. You're not previous. You're not going to live life the same way. You're now on Jesus' team. You're in God's family. So now your life is going to reflect that. Transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In other words, when we move from being a fan of Jesus... Yay, Jesus is a good guy. He did some cool things. I should believe in him. When we move from being just a fan of Jesus into being a follower of Jesus, things change. Things must change. There's some new things, some new realities that happen. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about three things that change because of Jesus. New things that happened in the one big story. You remember that story, the Old Testament, the New Testament? Well, when Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the grave, then ascended to heaven, things changed. What changed? What things became new, different? Well, I want to give you three things. These are not the only three things, but these are three major things. The first thing that happened because of Jesus was we have a new community we have a new community. Sometimes we miss this because we kind of think that our faith is just individual, and it's not. It was never made to be individual. It was made to be in community. And so the thing that happened that was new with Jesus is a new community. Uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, Jesus uh, kind of set this in motion, but it describes this brand new church, this brand new faith community. I want to read it for you. You guys have probably heard a lot of these words. A lot of you have. But let me just, just, just take note of how powerful this community must have been. How amazing this community must have been. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, All the believers, followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. In other words, in getting together. And to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, which is communion, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions 
and shared the money with those in need. How many of you just want to just, let's just sell all of our houses. We'll live in the village center forever and we're good. I'll call Sue and uh, let her know that we've got about, you know, several hundred people moving into the community center here. We're just going to hang out. We're going to have communion. We're going to serve those in need. Seems crazy, doesn't it? That's what the first church did. This was a new community. This was new. This was crazy. Do you think, you think people looked at them and they're like, what are you doing? You're crazy. New community. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals. Obviously, not everybody sold their houses. <laughs> they met in somebody's house. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. In other words, the church grew because it was powerful and amazing and nobody could stay away. Amazing community, new community, all because of Jesus. So when you become part of the team, when you're invited to the team, you also have to accept being on the team, right? Jesus died on the cross and he says, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to forgive you of your sins. All you have to do is accept me. All you have to do is believe in me. Now, when you do, the Bible's very clear that what happens is not only are you on God's team, but you're actually described as God's children. You're described as being part of God's family. You're in the family. You're adopted. Just like that. It's not like strings attached and all this kind of stuff. Now, does God want you to live a different way and do all those things? Yes, but you, th there's not strings attached like this, this is the only thing, and then you have to do all these things to get in. No, you just have to believe to get in, and then God will say, okay, now we've got work to do. It's kind of like my kids. If you're part of my family, you get to vacuum. If you're part of our family, you get to clean bathrooms. Yay! It's part of what you do. You're part of the family, right? And so there are responsibilities, but there also are great rights with that. You get great freedoms with that. We are part of God's family. Now, let me ask you this. What should we do with family? What I just said is you are part of a family. We are a family, right? Some of you are like, oh, man, I don't want to be part of this guy's family, <laughs> Right? I'm sorry, all right? but you are. We are a family. If you are a follower of Christ, you are part of God's family, and you are part of Northridge's faith community, our family. Now, let me ask you, what should you do with family? I want to give you two words. We should connect and protect. Connect and protect. Let's talk about connect. If we're going to connect, if we're going to genuinely be in real, genuine, authentic relationship together, what that requires is unity. When you really can't stand somebody, when you're at odds with somebody, when you're fighting with somebody, when you're having arguments with somebody, when you have division with somebody, how many of you just love hanging out with them? Man, it's awesome. Me neither. In fact, when I hear their name, think of their face, I'm like, uh. I don't think we need to go. I'm just calling out what we all know is true, right? And so we have that feeling. The same is true in church. If we are not unified together, if we're not connecting and unified as a body, we're not going to really be a good team or a good family. And what God wants is for us to have 
unity together as the body of Christ. Now, and, and by the way, when I say the body of Christ, that's kind of a weird term. That's a churchy term, right? When I talk about the body of Christ, that's what God says we are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, God says you are the body of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're the body of Christ. So you might be an earlobe, you might be a kneecap, you know? I'm probably like the fungus underneath the little toe, I don't know. I don't know what I am, but we're all different parts of Christ's body. We all have roles to play, and it doesn't work if some of the parts of the body decide, you know what, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do this. I'm not involved. I'm not going to give myself to the church. I'm not going to give my gifts to the church. I'm not going to share my time and my energy to the church, to the body of Christ. Well, then we don't function well, right? And so God loves unity, but God actually hates division. He hates conflict. Did you know that? That God actually hates it? The Bible tells us this. I want to read for you what it says. In Proverbs chapter 6, there's this list of seven things that God hates, and I want you to take special note of the last one, okay? So just, I'm going to read this list and then take special note. Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. I wonder if the writer was just like, oh, God gave me another one. I've always wondered that about this verse. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, prideful eyes, in other words, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and catch this, a person who sows discord in a family. If I were to pick one of those that I see more often in a church, I would pick the last one that I see more often. I've seen the others, but the last one is the one I see more often. And the reason is because when we communicate, we like to add to the mix, right? Let me try to illustrate this. So uh, I brought uh, a couple of buckets here. So when you hear something from somebody, now I I know we're humans, and so we all have opinions. I have opinions. A lot of people don't think I have strong opinions. Ask my wife, she'll tell you that is so wrong. I have opinions. I have very strong opinions. I just don't always share them overtly all the time, but I do have strong opinions. We all have strong opinions. And sometimes we like to share our opinions. In fact, sometimes we like to share about other people's opinions that they shared and we don't like it. And so we're going to say, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what the school board just passed for the Wanakee Community School District? Did you hear what we're going to have to do? Oh, I've heard a lot of those conversations. It's called gossip. It's called taking the negativity and expanding it. I'm going to make this grow. And the truth is that as human beings, we carry one of two buckets with us when we communicate. Right? One is gas and one is water. You may have never thought about it this way, but when you communicate with people, you carry either gas or you carry water. Think about it. Whenever you hear a comment, you can either add fuel to that comment. Ooh, yeah, she is terrible, isn't she? I agree with you. Yeah, we should march against the school district. Oh my goodness. Or you could pour water on it. Now, let me ask you this. Mm, we're having 
fun here today, aren't we? You ready for this? A comet is just like a flame, like a match, like a spark. You hear that comet, and then you get to decide what to do with it. The one person started it, they shouldn't have, but they did. But now it's up to you as what you're going to do with it now. And so you have this spark, and you can go one of two ways. You can go water, or you can go gas. You don't think I would have put gas in there, do you? <laughs> Some of you wondered. You were ready, weren't you? You wanted to see me lose my eyebrows. The truth is, though, that when we have these comments, when we have those things, you can do one of two things. You can either add fuel to the fire, keep it going, add to it, make yourself feel better, good for you, but it's false. And what you should do, what God says to do is extinguish it. It does nobody any good. Because if I did put gas in this bucket, what do we all know would happen? I'd probably do lose my eyebrows. Can I just say that when and if you add fuel to the fire, whatever that is, let me just say it's going to be far more destructive than somebody losing their eyebrows. You're going to destroy relationships. You're going to destroy organizations. You're going to destroy churches. You're going to destroy a lot of things that do not need to be destroyed, and you're the one that helped cause and fan the flame. In fact, a lot of people don't know this, but we have an advisory team here at the church, kind of our leadership team, and, uh, and I asked them to sign a covenant, a very long covenant with a whole set of uh, expectations. I sign it as well with them, just so that we're clear, uh, because I need to hold myself to the same standard. But one of the main ones on there, the advisor team would be able to tell you this, it's one of the last ones, might be, uh, I think it's second or third to last, is you're going to carry buckets of water, not buckets of gas. Because people will come to you and you'll hear things and be like, did you hear what Pastor Brent decided we're going to do? I can't believe they changed the, the, the direction of the chairs. I liked when we faced that direction. No, I didn't hear that, but I'm guessing some people talked about it. Well, what are you going to do with that, water or gas? God loves unity. He hates division. But in addition to connecting and being in unity as the body of Christ, he also wants us to protect one another. He wants us to protect one another. He wants us to watch out for each other. He wants us to fight for each other. And especially when it comes to our faith, when somebody is attacking your faith, then we as the family, we as the team should actually go to bat. We should be protecting them, just like in a football game. In fact, I want to show you a movie clip here in just a second. Uh, how many of you, just out of curiosity, have seen the movie called The Blind Side? How many of you have seen The Blind Side? Okay, a lot of, a lot of you have. That's awesome. All right, this, this, this makes sense then, all right? So the story of the, the movie The Blind Side is very simply about Michael Orr, who, because of his parents, his dad left uh, when he was young, and his mom was addicted to everything under the sun. And so he basically didn't have parents. Even though they existed, he didn't have parents. And, uh, and so he was homeless, and he was, you know... Subject to drugs and the drug war and all that stuff. And so the Tui family, a strong Christian family, comes in and, uh, and adopts him. This guy named Michael. And it turns out that Michael, not only is a big dude, 
right? But he is really, really good at football, and he has incredibly intense protective instincts. And the clip I want to show you is this. It kind of illustrates this point that we need to protect family. We need to go to bat. We need to fight for the ones that we know are valuable in our lives, especially those of faith, because we don't always think about that. And in this clip, you're going to see Sandra Bullock, who plays Michael Orr's mom. Of course, that's always good, right? Sandra Bullock, walks in, and she, she's watching this football practice, and Michael is not understanding that he's supposed to block, that he's supposed to protect his quarterback and his running back and the rest of the team. He doesn't understand that. He's, he's just kind of going through the motions. Like, he has the power to do it, but he's not doing it. He has the strength to do it. He's not doing it. He has the ability to do it, but he's not doing it. And so Sandra Bullock interrupts the football practice right in the middle of it and walks over and tries to help Michael understand this is your family. You need to protect them. Take a look. Give me a minute, Bert. We're in the middle of practice, Leanne. You can thank me later. Michael. Do you remember when we first met and we went to that horrible part of town to buy you those dreadful clothes? And I was a little bit scared and you told me not to worry about it because you had my back. Do you remember that? Yes, ma'am. And if anyone tried to get to me, you would have stopped them, right? And when you and SJ were in that car wreck, what did you do to the airbag? Stopped it. You stopped it. You stopped it. This team is your family, Michael. You have to protect them from those guys, okay? Listen. Tony here is your quarterback, all right? You protect his blind side. When you look at him, you think of me, how you have my back, how you have his, okay? All right, Tony, go back. All right. Oompa Loompa here is your tailback. When you look at him, you think of SJ and how you've never let anyone or anything hurt him. You understand me? All right, go back. Got it? What about Collins and Mr. Tui? Fine, they can be on the team too. Are you going to protect the family, Michael? Yes, ma'am. Good boy. Then go have some fun. Are you going to protect the family? Are you willing to go to bat, not just for yourself, but for your faith and for your faith community and for your church, for your family? Are you going to protect them? Are you going to fight for them? That's what it means to follow Jesus. So the first thing that happens because of Jesus is this new community. Now these last two are going to be quick because they really kind of fall into line. The next one that is new because of Jesus is that we get a new code. So Jesus brings up a new code. There's the Old Testament, and whenever Jesus talks and when he acts and he kind of speaks about the Old Testament, he always upheld it and defended it, but he also sometimes raised the standard of it. So let me give you a couple of examples from his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, when he preached on the side of a mountain. Let me give you one example, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Jesus says, you have heard the law. He's quoting back to the Old Testament. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I want to understand, this is like scripture that Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've heard it said. No, we didn't hear it said. 
It, it's in the law. Like, we've learned that from, like, when we were babies. And Jesus said, you've heard it said this. Actually, what I'm going to tell you is, this is what it means. He's not changing it. He's just raising it. He's saying, you say, love your neighbor. That's great. Hate your enemy. Nope. I'm going to actually ask you to love your neighbor and love your enemy as well. Okay, I love my neighbor. He's a little crazy. He's a little snoopy, too. I see the curtains. What's going on out there? Anybody have those neighbors? We do. I guess we're safe when we leave going out of town. They're going to keep an eye on things. That's good, right? Love your neighbor. But let's be honest, that's, that's not too hard. But love your enemy? Pray for the people who are persecuting us? That's raising the bar. Let me give you one more example. This one's going to dig in a little bit more personally. Matthew 5, 27, same sermon. Jesus says this just a few minutes before. He says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. He's quoting the, one of the Ten Commandments now. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow, that's a high standard. I've heard Christians say, well, as long as, long as I don't act on it. Actually, that's not right. At least according to Jesus. Now, some of you might be thinking right away, you're like, man, if so if I have a lustful thought or a bad thought, like it's sin automatically? Not necessarily. The key is, and I've mentioned this before, probably several years ago, the key is when that thought enters your mind, what do you do with it? Do you play around with it? If you do, yep, that's sin. If you discard it and say, nope, that's not of God, not for me, not good, then you're okay. Jesus raises the bar. He says it's not just the action, it's the intention. It's what you want to do. That's harsh. There's a new code that Jesus brings in. Now, here's the truth. We would like to think that we get to choose whether or not to follow the code, follow the laws. And in that case, you would be right. Here's what we get mixed up, most human beings anyway. We mix up the fact that if we choose whether or not to follow the law, the problem is we don't get to choose what the consequences are based on our actions. Does that make sense? We can choose whether or not to follow God, but we can't choose what happens as a result. And that includes whether you follow God or not. It doesn't matter. You can choose whether or not to follow God, but you can't choose the consequences. Let me give you an illustration. Um, so when I was a teenager, I had actually just graduated high school. It was the summer after I graduated high school, and I was working my tail off to make as much money as I could to go to college. And so it was that summer in between there. And uh, there was a night where I had been working really late, and so I went over to a friend's house, and just, it was just low-key hanging out, just one other person. And, uh, and I was driving back. I stayed very, very late. Like, it was, it was past 2 in the morning, I know that. It was really, really late. I don't remember exactly what time, but it was late. And I'm driving back home, uh, and this was from Altoona to Eau Claire. So anybody that knows the Eau Claire area, you know, kind of know. I'm, I'm about 10 minutes from home, and I'm driving along, and I hit this speed zone where it goes from 55 to 45 to 35. You know what I'm talking about? And it goes, and it happens fast. And so I knew I was coming up on that, and I start slowing down, right? I just didn't slow down fast enough. And so I hit the 35-mile-per-hour zone. I, I don't know exactly how fast I was going, 43, something like that. I really wasn't going fast. I was slowing down. 
I really was slowing down. Some of you are skeptical. I was slowing down. But I didn't slow down fast enough. And so when I hit, when I hit, when I hit, that, I hit that, that 35 mile per hour sign, I was definitely faster than that. And sure enough, the police officer was there. Yes. Love that. Don't you just love that? Woo, red and white sirens. Yes. And so, and I'm loving it even more because it's the middle of the night and I'm loving it even more because I just graduated high school and, you know, I'm, I'm out in the middle of the night. It just doesn't look good anyway. And so, so I pull over and I'm thinking everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get a ticket and then I move on. I get to bed and we're okay. Well, as the police officer's walking up to the car, I remember that my birthday was like three or four days before this, which is no big deal, except here's the problem. My license had expired on my birthday. Yes, this night is getting better. So he walks up to the window, tap, tap, tap thing, whatever, and I, you know, I hand him my license, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping he doesn't notice. He notices. That's his job. And he's like, uh, did you know that your license is expired? Yes, I did. I'm sorry. I've been working like crazy, so I didn't take time off of work to go to the DMV when the, when the hours are open. And I said some comment that probably wasn't best, like the DMV should be open after hours so that people like me can do that, you know, whatever. That's what I was thinking as well. And so anyway, we're going through all this. And, and so he hands it back. He, he gives me a ticket, all kind of stuff. But then, and I thought we were done. But then he says, I can't let you drive home because you're, you're illegal. Oh, no. And now I'm getting a little testy, and so I was like, uh, sir, I'm still slightly respectful, can I drive over to the payphone over there so I can call home? Because we didn't have cell phones, you understand. Right? Yes, I'm that old, just so that we're clear. No cell phones, right? And so I have to go to the payphone and call, and so I go over there, pop the money in, call mom. My dad is out of town. Okay? So I call mom. That's a fun conversation after two in the morning. Hi, Mom. Sorry I woke you up. So, got pulled over, expired license. He's not going to let me drive home. Fantastic. You know what my mom said? If you know my mom, you guys know this is not going to be a surprise to you. She said, put him on. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. She said, put him on. I was like, oh, man. This is going to go badly for me, is what I'm thinking, right? So sure enough, I, I was like, she wants to talk to you. And so it's like, okay. So she talks to my mom, it all sets up. And basically why, and I didn't realize this, but why she wanted to talk to him is she doesn't have a vehicle. My dad took the only other vehicle. I have the only one for the family for the weekend. And so she can't come and get, she can't come and get me even if she had to. There's no way. And so she's trying to talk. He wouldn't budge. And so he gets off the phone, hands back, I hang up. And he said, so this is what we're going to do. You're going to get in the back of the squad car with me. I was like, yes, this is getting so much better. I love this. And we're going to go pick up your mom. Yes. And then we're going to ride. I'm going to bring you guys back to the car so that she can drive you home. I'm like, yes. This is, this is everything I've ever wanted in the middle of the night. So sure enough, we drive there. Mom got to get out of bed, get dressed. We got to ride in the back of a police car together. <laughs> this was awesome. And we got to the car and we drove home and it was all good. But the point is this. I can choose whether or not I'm going to obey the speed limit. I can choose whether or not I'm going to obey the laws. I don't get to choose what my consequences are. Neither do you. We have to live according to the new code that Jesus calls us to. 
The third thing that Jesus made new is this. We have a new calling. A new calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me just be very, very clear. You are also supposed to be a witness for Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be a witness for Jesus. This whole idea of our, our faith is private is a lie from Satan and hell. I haven't said it quite that boldly before. I'm just telling you, your faith being private is a lie from the pit of hell. There, just so that we're clear. So if you want your faith to be private, choose a different religion. No, seriously, just, just do that because that's not what Christianity is. You can be a fan all you want, but we need to be followers. And what Jesus calls us to is to become more like Jesus and point people to Jesus. Now, should your faith be personal? Should it be sacred? Absolutely. That doesn't mean you hold it to yourself. We've confused those. It should be holy. It should be sacred. It should be very personal. My faith is intensely personal to me but it can't be private. If I have people in my life that have no idea that I'm a follower of Jesus, that's wrong. It doesn't mean I walk into every room and be like, hey guys, my name is Brent, I'm a Jesus follower. Hey Brent, nice to meet you, what do you do? Awesome, I just wanted you to know, I follow Jesus, do you? I don't do that right out of the gate, right? Don't be weird about it, but don't hide it. We have a new calling. And the reason we have a new calling is because Jesus wants everyone to come to him and find salvation. Let me give you one last illustration. So Pastor Kevin Myers, the one who originally delivered you know, this series, uh, gives a very powerful illustration, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, he went through a season where he got tired of doing church work. Pastors get tired too sometimes. And he was like, God, how much more do we need to push? Like, how hard do we have to work? Do we need to reach more people for Jesus? Like, we, we're growing. The church is doing awesome things. Do, uh, can I just slow down? Do we ha how hard do we have to push to, to reach more people and give them the good news of Jesus and that, they, that he died for them? How much harder do we have to work? And I don't remember, I don't think that Pastor Kevin said whether it was that time or if it was a later time with Jesus, but, but he was spending some prayer time and God very clearly, not audibly, not in an audible voice, but very clearly prompted Kevin. He said, Kevin, I want you to do something. I want you to write down the three names of your, the names of your three kids. I just want you to write them down. And then God said to him very clearly, again, not audibly, but he just knew that God wanted him to do this. He said, I want you to circle two of the names. Not all three, I want you to circle two. He said, you can choose who you want to save, but then I'm not going to save the third one. Now understand, God wasn't telling Kevin, I'm not going to do that. He was trying to make a very clear point to Kevin. And the point was very simple. The point was, Kevin, there's no way you wouldn't circle all three of your kids' names to spend eternity with God. There's no way you wouldn't do that. You would do anything. You would lose your own life. You would lose your own salvation to make sure that your own kids, all three of them, make it in eternity with God. And Kevin said, yeah. And God said, now think about how I view my children. 
every human being I see as one of my children. You have to reach them. I have you to do the work for that. I can do the work with you, but that's what I'm calling you to do. So I just want to remind us that our work is not done. So you guys know I have three kids. So this hits home. In fact, I I went so far as to put my own kids' names. These are my kids' names. Jackson, Hannah, and Tanner. You can't tell me that I'm going to choose one or two to make it and the other one spends eternity in torment. Are you kidding me? I hope you catch the gravity of this. This is important. The same responsibility that I have as a follower of Christ is not different because I'm a pastor. You have the same one. To reach as many people with the good news and the power and the message of Jesus and the fact that he loves them and that he desires to save all of them, not just a couple. Our work, church, our work is not even close to done. It's barely getting started. And I hope that you will join God in what he wants to do. So the question I have for you today is very simply this. Are you a fan or are you willing to be a true follower? I hope that we have a church that is full of people who want to be more than fans. They want to be followers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your sacrifice for us. I thank you that you died on the cross in my place and in the place of every person in here, every person listening, watching online. You died in our place. You took our punishment, our pain, our, our punishment that we were supposed to have. You took it. You, you did that. You took our place because you want every name to be circled. You want every person to find salvation, freedom from sin that only comes through you. God, you desire for every person to find salvation in you and through you. Help us as the church to realize that our community and the code, the the standard that you call us to live by, And all the other things that go with it, especially our calling, is what you want us to live by. So that we can become more like you and so that we can point more people to you. Help us to do the work that you've called us to. Individually, as families, and as the family of God, as the body of Christ, the church. Because there are many more people out there who need your love and forgiveness. Our work is not done. Our work is not done. Our work is not done, God. We declare that. We know that. We acknowledge that. Help us, draw us, motivate us, challenge us, push us to do your will and your work because we need to drop 
this idea that we can just be fans. We need to be followers. Help us to be followers, Jesus. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.